I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I bought it all and I dropped off But I'm, I'm still seeking something I'm still seeking something Hello and welcome to another tremulous episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where four friends sit down to discuss the young adult fiction we enjoyed as kids, and on alternate episodes, discuss the stuff they're knocking out these days. My name is Laurie, and after much faffing, a few interstate and overseas adventures between us, I'm joined by my fellow hosts, the host that recently touched a giant hardwood and quite liked it, Keith Rowe. Hello. It's going to be one of those, is it? <laughs> I think every episode is one of those, isn't it? <laughs> Keith, you recently returned from the land of truth, justice and hamburgers. How was your trip? It was excellent, thanks for asking. It was trying with two children, but it was excellent nonetheless. If from the trip you had to recommend just one attraction, natural wonder or fun activity to our listeners to do when visiting the good old US of A, what would it be? Natural wonder, definitely Yosemite Valley, and attraction, I would probably say the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Even more than Disney World? As a one-off, yes. Disney World was amazing. Disneyland, in fact, was amazing. Aha. Uh-huh. And before I move on, how many times did the locals assume you were either Kiwi or British? Just once for New Zealand. I think that was it. And otherwise, yeah, we were either in too large a group for us to be questioned or were convincing as Australians. Hmm, Jolly good old Pip. (laughs) Did people find you a bit of a novelty? I don't think so. I think we're in pretty touristy areas for the most part, so they're all preoccupied with their own endeavours. We're also joined by the epiphescent Brie. Hello. Brie, how would you feel if I revealed to the listeners that despite your apparent ho-hummedness towards some quality science fiction and fantasy on the show that you're actually turning out to be a bit of a sci-fi fan on the sly. Sci-fi? I thought you told me it was fantasy. Mm, Firefly out of five stars? (laughs) I plead the fifth. Fifth star? Fringe out of five stars? (laughs) That's not sci-fi, is it? It most certainly is (laughs) sci-fi. What did you think was fantasy? I mean, Firefly, to quote... Who who am I quoting? Someone from Firefly. We live on a spaceship. It is, it is sci-fi. I go way back with sci-fi. Like Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the ultimate, right? I wouldn't say that's the ultimate sci-fi. No. I would say that's more fantasy, actually. <laughs> this is going well. We, we, need, we need to have a sit-down conversation about genres, I think. <laughs> well, welcome to the cult of elves and laser swords, Bree. Oh, thank you. Elves are no good. Honestly, elves, I think I need to draw a line. Oh, let me introduce you to a couple of books. Oh, God. Maybe at Rogue One we can buy a couple of limited edition Star Wars Coke cups together. (laughs) (laughs) I don't drink Coke. Oh, but the cups, Bree, the cups. (laughs) Finally, I'm joined by the youthful Patrick Moon. Thank you. Pat, you're just coming out of 74 years of university study. I am. Apart from breaking hearts nationwide, <laughs> what are you looking forward to most this summer? Lying on the beach, potentially reading a book or two might be on the cards because that's something I've been denied for about... 74 years. <laughs> yeah, I, I think some rest and recuperation and the ability to read all of the books that we decide to do for the podcast as well will be nice. Maybe a few extras. Yeah, maybe a few extras. I've already started cramming in a few extras, actually. Like, reading as a hobby again. Oh, my goodness. So, no actual work, then? Well, not... It's almost Christmas, Brie. What are you talking about? (laughs) Bloody Grinch. Yeah. (laughs) I just know if you read anything good, Pat. I, I will do so. All right, good to catch up with you, kids. Before I go on, I'm going to warn you all, in a fashion that will be much briefer than previous episodes and going forward, that we're going to spoil The Secret Garden for those of you who haven't read it. Nip off and read it. If that's the sort of thing that gets your knickers in a twist, we'll wait. Ha ha ha! These suckers sinks! We are waiting! Ha ha ha! 
I hope that's not the model of what you're going to do every week. <laughs> no, that's his Yorkshire accent. <laughs> I don't know that it was. <laughs> Keith, you didn't get a chance to go digging about in the secret garden because you were abroad, but you will have at least read page one. Take it away. I will. When Mary Lennox was sent to Misselthwaite Manor to live with her uncle, everybody said she was the most disagreeable-looking child ever seen. It was true, too. She had a little thin face and a little thin body, thin light hair and a sour expression. Her hair was yellow and her face was yellow because she had been born in India and had always been ill in one way or another. Her father had held a position under the English government and had always been busy and ill himself. And her mother had been a great beauty who cared only to go to parties and amuse herself with gay people. She had not wanted a little girl at all. And when Mary was born, she handed her over to the care of an ayah, who was made to understand that if she wished to please the memsahib, she must keep the child out of sight as much as possible. So when she was a sickly, fretful, ugly little baby, she was kept out of the way. And when she became a sickly, fretful, toddling little thing, she was kept out of the way also. She never remembered seeing familiarly anything but the dark faces of her ayah and the other native servants, and as they always obeyed her and gave her her own way in everything, because the Mem Sahib would be angry if she was disturbed by her crying, by the time she was six years old, she was as tyrannical and selfish a little pig as ever lived. And there we have it. Thank you, Keith. You're welcome. What did you think of it, Laurie? Well, Keith in particular, I guess, I've said this time and time again. If I don't love the characters in the first seven syllables, <laughs> then the book's just not going to work for me. <laughs> <laughs> Get your digs in, he's been on holiday <laughs> We've missed you <laughs> yeah, Thanks I will explain that in a moment No, it's not entirely true for me in this case I actually like that Burnett has magicked up this ugly little shit of a child Because there's either an epic journey of growth ahead Or it's going to be a black comedy Would you say that it's the child's fault given the explanation of her youth? No, no, but whether it's the child's fault or not, uh, being a tyrannical little brat is still the outcome. So I'm interested to see how that character develops into something else. Yep, I agree entirely. I will say, though, of me being accused of having to love the characters, loving or liking the characters doesn't mean I have to agree with everything they do, so I do love the odd Nasty character as well. You didn't uh, read the book because you were busy. And movie aside, would this page have lured you in to read more? Or Yeah, I think having not read it, I wouldn't have expected it to be quite like this. There's something a little bit abrupt about it, and I like that. Mm. I, don't, I don't know if it continues on in that fashion. I guess I'll find out. What do you think, Bree? I agree wholeheartedly with you both. I think it's an absolutely fantastic way to introduce a snotty little character you want to know what's going to happen to her. And I think that exotic, I guess, upbringing, very different to if she was brought up as a proper little English girl in England, just adds that intrigue. And you, Pat? I liked quite a bit. I liked the slightly more exotic locale for a a British-based novel. And overall, I did enjoy that character who may be slightly less likable than average a bit of a spoiled brat and you do kind of anticipate that there's going to be a massive turnaround there because there always is in these stories but it was an interesting jumping off point i think so yeah good stuff great well it doesn't really get easier for the character from there does it (laughs) not particularly yeah mary is Essentially a neglected child in the first chapter, shunned by her disinterested parents, as you heard. And it's not clear if it's because she's such a skinny ugger, more on that later, (laughs) or because they're just jerks. They were. But fortunately for Mary, she's not left alone to terrorise her nannies, because they, and her parents, all die of cholera about four paragraphs in. (laughs) Yay! (laughs) So Mary is shipped off to Mary Old to live with her uncle, who is also disinterested in seeing her face. Still unclear if it's because she's such a foul sight to behold. Or hearing her, or pretty much having to deal with her at all. Family trait, we assume. Still, he lives in a mega mansion with a pretty expansive garden, so the traumatised little bint gets some fresh air. You're negative towards poor Mary. (laughs) (laughs) Mary, however, slowly transforms from a resentful little princess 
into a real human being, making friends with her charming maid, Martha, the gardener, Ben Weatherstaff, and Dickon, Martha's little brother, who pretty much grows up to be Dr. Doolittle, I reckon. I thought of him as your favourite character, actually. Gerald Durrell. <laughs> he was a real person, David. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Not in the books. Poetic <laughs> licence taken. Dickens pretty famous for being able to make friends with all of the birds and beasts upon the moor on which they all live. Mary discovers the lost key to the secret garden, an area forbidden to all by her grieving uncle after her aunt was killed by a falling branch in that garden she so loved. On the sly, Mary and Dickens set to restoring the secret garden to its former glory. Things get a little bit more convoluted when Mary, who is improving both in attitude and health, hooray, I'm fat, (laughs) discovers that the biggest turd in the story is actually her cousin, who is hidden away inside the mansion. He suffered a similar affliction of being a spoiled brat with no parental guidance, and he's convinced he's dying and moments away from growing a humpback. Mary, seeing a bit of her own failings in her cousin, won't have a bar of it. She tells him about the secret garden, and between Dickon and herself, they convince Colin that he's not dying, that the secret garden is the shit, and that fresh air will put hair on his chest and nary a hump on his spine. Colin hops outside, does a few squats, works his glutes, and discovers that a little pagan magic and a stamped foot in his face was all that he needed. The book wraps up with Colin revealing to his father, who returns from abroad after finally figuring out that he should try and be a parent, that he's a real boy who's not going to die, and everyone high-fives in freeze frame. The end. (laughs) I think you covered everything. Yes, not bad. We'll see if we mention other characters or anything along the way, or the pagan magic or whatever it is. Sure. (laughs) All right, Bray, this one's on you. Yes. Why did you choose The Secret Garden for us? Well, clearly because it's about 100 years old, so... Uh, Your vintage... Yeah, I was going to say they only I only read things that come off my grandmother's bookshelf. <laughs> <laughs> no, this one is a classic. It was written, I think, in 1949. I read it as a child. My sister read it. My mum read it as a child. So mum was a child in the 50s. So when it came out, she was young. And I have fond memories of this one. It's unusual that there are snotty little characters as the central protagonists. And I think that transformation of both of them spoke to me a lot. Spoke to you from personal experience of developing from (laughs) snotty brat to functioning human? Interestingly, my snotty brat came quite a bit later in my teens. (laughs) It often does. And if my sister's listening, I'm sure she'll comment on Facebook of uh, some of the snottiness that I exhibited. I like boys with motorbikes, Bronte. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. The book's wick. I like it. I think you guys should read it. I've had a bit of hit and miss with some of the old stuff that I recall from my youth. I was going to say, did you feel a little trepidation given the reception of Little Women? I.e. frosty. (laughs) Absolutely. The whole way through I kept thinking... I still don't think it's quite as bad. still don't think they'll find it quite as bad. There's still some hope here, so we'll see. Well, Patrick, let's hear from you first. Did it tickle your fancy? I can say to relieve any of the stress that Bree is feeling right now, (laughs) this is substantially better than Little Women, (laughs) in, in my view. I thought it was a flawed book in some ways, but one that I ultimately rather enjoyed. Like some of the other ones that we've read before, I know this is a criticism that I keep coming back to, so I don't know whether it's something that's wrong with me or it's something that is popping up in the books. I feel like it outstayed its welcome just a little bit. It was charming. It it got off to a good start. And that nice, albeit slightly predictable, arc of snotty little brat to reasonable kind of human thing worked out quite well. It was nice to watch. It was nice to read. It was nice to follow. But at a certain point, I just felt like saying, well, I've had enough now. Let's just sort of skip this middle hundred pages or so and and get towards the ending. Do you really think that that is quite usual, snotty little brat to transformed? I mean, I was trying to think of other examples where you've got a character, the main character that is quite as detestable as I found Mary initially. And I didn't come up with any. I mean, even Anne of Green Gables, she's got some 
funny things about her, but she's really just going through life trying her hardest. She's not this child that slaps her, effectively her slaves, the way she treats people. It's pretty extreme in this one, I suppose, and it is coming from a lower jumping off point. And I'm kind of struggling now that I've said it to think of good examples. But mm. what about Malta in the live ship books? What, is she is she a little bit of a, a snot at the beginning? I can't remember now. Yes, she is quite detestable. She comes to mind as an example of that kind of archetype. Mm. What about Yavi? You never got the transformation, but... <laughs> Yavi could just continued to be a bit of a douche. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, book two and three, he could be redeemed there. So, yeah, perhaps not as out and out overdone as I might be making it sound, but it's, I certainly didn't have much doubt from the beginning about where that was going to go. Mm-hmm. But it, it was an enjoyable experience to, to read. Uh, the kind of relationships between the characters, I felt sort of stalled a little bit at a certain point. There was this interesting dynamic of Colin and his father who had essentially repudiated any relationship with him because of the grief that Colin's mother had died because Colin was nominally going to die himself or may have been a cripple and the kind of almost disgust that his father felt based on those factors but their rekindling growing relationship never really came into it and I I thought that would have been something interesting that I would have enjoyed reading. As Laurie said, it was pretty much Archibald comes home at the end and pretty much everyone high fives and that's the end of that. There's no real exploration of how the relationship changes given Colin's growth. Essentially, the book is a number of hundred pages, I don't know how many, about growing the garden. And that was well and good and I enjoyed it for a while, but I thought there was too much of it. I think... I'll delve into some of the the magic and stuff a little bit later and I suspect Laurie's probably going to have something to say about that too and I found (laughs) that a little bit of a weak point for me. What about you, Laurie? Well, I guess I'll just respond to what you said about the garden and the garden itself was featured quite a bit in the book but I think it really spoke to the theme of the book. It was all about rejuvenation. Mary was rejuvenating from her ill treatment as a child and and grew in the garden and got the fresh air and the air of the moor rejuvenated her and it started to change her. And I liked that she was able to pass that on to her cousin. She could recognise that the things that were failing in her at the beginning of the book were failing in him and she brought him out to the garden and started to set him on the right path as well. I really liked that theme of the garden which had been left to rot as they repaired the garden, they also repaired themselves. I thought it was quite good. I thought that was nice, and it's a good metaphor, and definitely there's that idea of rejuvenation there, but it was the central focus of the book, whereas I feel like if there was another narrative going on outside of that with the return to the garden as kind of the backbone of the story rather than the story entire, it would be a stronger narrative. Yeah, I I actually quite liked how it ended. So with this burst of surprise and love and a real high point and you've had this incredible journey that these kids have been on together with, you know, the help of Dickon and his animal friends and Martha and these real people. And I just think it's this beautiful moment when Colin, who's never trained himself to walk. Nobody's ever taken him for a walk. And he just runs to his dad. And I just think that's such a fantastic way to end the story. And you can imagine what then goes on after the book. I felt a little bit jaded by it in that I'm kind of expecting the dad to be like, oh, you're not a dumb little cripple after all. I guess I can love you. (laughs) But but it wasn't all about him being a cripple. Yes, he was sick. But I swear that there was a reference in the book somewhere, a line about him looking at his son and only seeing his wife. I think I thought it was more about the depression, the, the unexpected death of his wife by the falling branch in, mm. in the garden. I thought it was more about his depression and inability to get over his mourning more than the sickness of the child. Like if he wasn't mourning his wife so extremely, then maybe he would have forced his son to get out of bed and get into the garden, get some fresh air, and all that wouldn't have happened. I didn't mm. feel so much that he was looking at his child in disgust, more that... He was looking at his son and seeing the eyes of his dead wife. I agree with that, but I also think pretty selfish reaction, really. Like, what a bit of a... That guy's a douche as well. I mean, you've got this kid, he's alive. He's still alive 10 years later. Like, I don't know, you just... 
don't abandon your kids like that. Or you shouldn't. I made the joke before about the pagan magic, and, and I was only kind of half joking. When the kids are out in the garden, it, it really seemed to me as I was reading that I almost felt that they were praying to the gods of nature and they were in this swirling, I don't know, maelstrom of life all around them and that's what was rejuvenating them. There was one point, and I wondered if it was just so the author wasn't burnt at the stake for being a witch or something, where they start reading one Christian verse, but it wasn't like Christianity wasn't forced upon you throughout the book. I felt that they were praying to very different gods at one point than the Christian God. And I found that came out later as well when the father has gone abroad. Like he's he's all right, all right, I'm out of here. <laughs> I don't want to ignore this child. I don't want to ignore this new niece that's just arrived to their face. So I'm going to duck out overseas and see if I can... Uh, get my head straight and he was wandering around for a while but one night he was lying out under the stars and the wind was blowing the grass was rustling and he could hear the stars singing and all this kind of stuff and and i felt again (laughs) it suddenly i don't know this nature-based magic or religion was sort of seeping in again did anyone else feel that or did, did it all just seem all very christian to you for me it didn't feel all that Christian, actually. It just felt like, I guess you said it well, it's the magic of nature and these kids together and playing children's games and they see magic and fairies and their imagination just runs wild. And for me, it was just a continuation of that, this a child's game together. Hmm. Hmm. It got to the point where Dickon was talking to the animals, like he was a spirit of nature himself. Pat, what did you think? I think once the talk of magic started to come up in general, it started to lose me a little bit because it just sounded a a little bit rambly and silly at a certain point and they went on and on about it. But coming from the the perspective, I suppose, of the author, I was reading that the author, Burnett, is it, Mm. was a Christian scientist who are a denomination who I think see God less as a anthropomorphic kind of human figure and more as a, a spiritual force or environmental force or something along those lines. And they're the, the same ones who believe that uh, physical ailments and things are attributable to, I guess, disordered thinking and that the best way to resolve your physical complaints and things is via prayer and that kind of thing. And really that's played out quite strongly through Colin's experience there where he's essentially tapping into what we might in more kind of contemporary times look at as positive psychology or something like that is is portrayed more as a a mantra or a prayer or something along those lines in the book. I find that interesting actually. I thought I read a critique of this book where somebody had actually said to Francis Hodgson Bennett, are you a Christian scientist? Is that what you were trying to do? And she said, this isn't about Christian science. It's not about Buddhism and it's not about Catholicism and it's not about Christian science. It's not about a denomination. It's about these kids together with their imagination healing each other. So she wasn't trying to alienate or convert or those sorts of things. And from a practical standpoint, he wasn't just praying to the gods of nature and listening to the wind and hugging a leaf. He mm. was actually doing burpees at the same time to get better. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah th- th- I think there are a lot of valid points there about positive psychology, which there is a lot of evidence for now in in contemporary scientific literature. And of course, yeah, just the physical activity that he was engaging in, mm. getting out and and I I started to get a bit lost when they started to ascribe that to this magical force of the universe. And I managed to pull myself back in a little bit when I'm like, well, they're just, they're kids and this is their sort of explanation for what's going on. But it did start to me to start creep towards that didactic kind of style that gives me a little bit of pause and makes me a little bit frustrated with what I'm reading. Just so you know, when I was a kid, that magic stuff was probably one of the things that I loved the most about the book was this sense that you can you can do anything together and this imagination that that secret world hidden behind a wall and the amazing things that can happen there. And I have really fond memories of it. It drove me a little bit nuts, similarly to Pat, because I think they sort of go on and on about it. And that wasn't my favourite part, reading it as an adult. So... Hmm. Yeah, I didn't mind it. I was surprised. Apart from the the brief Christian verse at one point, I thought it was a fantasy perspective than a religious or spiritual perspective and yeah, mm. quite enjoyed it. Uh, the book as a whole, I, I really loved it, to be honest with you. I thought it was 
fantastic. It might have been a touch too long, maybe just a bit longer than it needed to be, but the transformation of Mary and her and Dickon transforming Colin, I thought, worked really well. The father returning was a little bit abrupt. This aside where he was overseas and suddenly had this moment of clarity where he realised that perhaps he was over his depression and he really should return and try and make the best relationship with his child before he dies. And that moment where he comes back and sees his bedridden child racing around the garden and almost thumping into him and looking lean and healthy and strong. Or fat and healthy and well, strong. Yes, fat. Fat and healthy and strong. Uh, that, that really tugged at the heartstrings. I thought it, it was abrupt, but it just worked really well. The, the only criticism I have of the book, the, the plot points that bugged me just a touch were Colin wants to surprise his father when and if he returns someday um, with his new healthiness. So he he and the other two children pretend that they're still sickly or or two of them at least are sickly and um, try and cover up their tracks by rejecting food that have been made by the the cooks and things like that and I was just a little bit annoyed that they kept the 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 staff in the dark because it was a waste of food and they were all worried and yeah but these guys are like little rajas basically they've they've got no concept of other people going without or other people not having enough. And you've even got Martha's mother who's bringing them food and drink. Like that's the bit that drove me nuts was that this poor woman who's got, what has she got, eight kids on her own and they're taking stuff from her. I just thought, oh, God. Yeah, right. Snotty little shits. Yeah. There was something else, but it's just slipped my mind. So whatever it was, it can't have been that bad. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it, like especially coming from – Something like Little Women, where I thought, oh dear, all old books are now crap and dangerous ground to walk upon. (laughs) This was really enjoyable. Um, I did intend to watch the movie, but didn't get a chance. So I'm not sure what it was like. But as a book, I I couldn't recommend it enough to to anyone, really. I enjoyed it as an adult, so I'm sure a a young teen would would love it. I have the biggest smile right now. (laughs) What about you, Bree? I think I've probably made most of my points through discussions over the last 10 minutes, but I think the interesting thing is that I disliked Mary at the start. I disliked Colin and I still disliked Colin at the end. I can't help it. I found Mary, even at the beginning, a little bit more lovable. I can't put my finger quite on it. Perhaps it's the fact that she's not having all night tantrums. She's got this stoicism about her. She's quite a determined and I think they call her odd and determined at some and regular occasions throughout the book. You forgot ugly. And, but I find that quite a good combination and that comes through and she, she effectively puts Colin back in his place a few times and I just find him still kind of unlovable. And maybe that's part of what you were saying, Laurie, about the children together decide to fool the staff. And, but that really comes from Colin wanting to have this big surprise. And I, ah. Oh. He was a little bit behind though. Yes. I felt the same way, but he didn't quite have as much time for growth in the book that Mary did. Mary only discovered her cousin hiding away in the building halfway through the book. Mm. I think Mary had the capacity to kind of bend and adjust to what was expected of her from other people. She was haughty and nasty to her maid. She took on that quite imperial sort of attitude when she first arrived, but it didn't take long for her to start to see the servants as people and to become a little bit more, I suppose, nice. I don't mm. know. She she warmed up. She was a little bit more considerate of the people around her as she got healthier, physically stronger, all of those kinds of things. Whereas Colin, he never quite changed. He was mm. He was manipulative and lordly and insufferable and sickly and then continued to carry on most of those qualities I think as he got healthier he was he was still manipulative he still viewed himself as greater than everybody else who was around him mm. he never really was rocked from his station at mm. all and that made him appear to be a bit of a twerp because he was a bit of a twerp I couldn't understand why Dickon put up with this lot it was I almost felt like he was He's just magnanimous, purely magnanimous. Yes, he was. He was a fantastic character, you know, just this quiet kid who loves nature and hardworking and looks after his family and loves his family and for some reason dotes or doesn't he doesn't dote, I suppose, but he he really engages with these two elite 
kids who probably to his eyes have absolutely everything available to them and yet don't appreciate anything. So, Both of them appreciated exactly what he could provide though. Yes, that is interesting, isn't it? Mm. Which, which, I mean, apart from the fuzzy little animals that he brings to show them, it's mm. really his uh, connection with nature that they find themselves connecting with. What did you feel, uh, Bree and Pat, about the book's incessant reference to Mary being ugly and skinny? <laughs> <laughs> well, interest- I knew you were going to bring this up. And so I looked up Yavi, okay? So let's just put it into context. You kept saying to me, oh, they keep calling her plain. They use the word plain 41 times. How many times do they use the word unfortunate? In I didn't look up that word. What they used, every time they mentioned Yavi's hand, I literally slapped my forehead. This is a throwback to half a king for anyone who's not sure. And I'm surprised I don't have a permanent bruise because it was 300 and something. <laughs> it did remind me of that criticism from the last oh, book. Yeah, it just, but it's nowhere near, like, in terms of consistency, it's nowhere near what was happening in half a hand. Did you notice I, it, Pat? I noticed it, but I wasn't perturbed by it. Mm. I, I didn't think it, there was an excessive amount of comment on people's appearance like there may have been in half a king and i, I suppose i suppose what fuck you all. <laughs> I, I still i still quite enjoyed half a king they get, get retrospectively annoyed at me um but uh i think what bemused me more was the sort of semi-frequent references to how much more attractive they were because they were getting fat and i, I just i don't know whether whether it's a peculiarity of the language of the time, whether we're we're going from people who are emaciated essentially to sort of having some healthy meat on their bones or, or what it is. But I've got to say it, it gives me great hope that perhaps the, the cycle of the times will come around again and <laughs> those of us who are in a constant battle with our weight will be exalted <laughs> as the beautiful of the world. <laughs> Uh, we'll be celebrated as kings, you and I, Patrick. <laughs> Fetch me my wheelchair. I'm going into the garden. <laughs> Sorry, Bree, continue on. Uh, I think I'm actually coming to an end. I've really sort of discussed most of the things I quite liked. Um, I, I did enjoy meeting the little Robin. So oh, yes. the secret garden, the key to the secret garden is actually hidden away and it's this... Mary begins, I guess, her healing by befriending this red robin that pops along the garden and he leads her to this key which she can then enter the the magic world beyond and I thought that was quite sweet. It was remarkably well done, I thought, that Mm. little little story about the bird. Mm. Mm. I loved it. I still loved it. I wonder how Keith went with the movie. Well, why don't I tell you how I went with the movie? Please do. Which version was it that you watched, Keith? It's the most, I believe, the most popular one. It's the 1993 version. I've seen it, but not since 1993. <laughs> does it star anyone we know? It does star someone we would all know. It's Maggie Smith. Ah, uh, yes. She of Minerva McGonagall fame. Who did she play? She was Miss Medlock or Mrs. Medlock. I was going to say, she might have been a touch off for a Mary, I would have thought. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she certainly wasn't Mary. Um, yeah, before I get into the movie, I just want to say that was really interesting to listen to that. I think I would be very similar to Laurie and enjoy it and a little similar to Pat in that I'd probably think it went on a little bit too long. I wonder whether that's part and parcel of the age where people wanted to get value from books so they drag on a little bit. So to the movie, when it came out, it was competing with Jurassic Park, which I guess you couldn't really find two movies that are such polar opposites. I should have gone to see The Secret Garden because I had to leave Jurassic Park about three quarters of the way through because I was too scared. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you at least saw the guy get eaten off the toilet, right? Oh, I can't, I can't remember at which point I left. I think I got very near the end. And yet you were reading Misery and other such books. Oh, that was a couple of years later. (laughs) (laughs) This movie has been pretty well received and having watched it, I can see why. But I will say you have to be in the right frame of mind to watch it or I have to be in the right frame of mind to watch a movie like this. Uh, If you give us that Anne of Green Gables quote again, (laughs) I'm just going to stab you. (laughs) No, it's not not about preparing oneself. It's just the, the sort of pacing of the movie. It was 
a slow and meandering pacing that you need to be focused on enjoying it as opposed to being easily distracted as I am. I found myself, my attention wandering off on a few occasions. But it was really well crafted and a well-made movie with a beautiful setting, the contrast between the darkness and the fretful order inside Misselthwaite Manor and the vibrant, colourful garden that came to life through the movie was perfect for the, the themes that this book and movie examine. Having listened to you guys and having read a little bit about the book, it stays pretty true to the themes. There's quite a few differences in terms of the story, mostly minor ones as to how Mary's parents died. It was an earthquake in India as opposed to cholera. There's a few other differences, I think, from what I've read. The score in it as well, actually, was really a perfect fit and it was almost like a character throughout. And I think that really took it over the edge and that's why it's been so well received. Hmm. How did they, uh, did they execute the character of the Robin well? Yeah, the character of the Robin was what led Mary to the garden. Mm-hmm. She, she found the key in, you know, the belongings of her dead aunt and then was led to the entrance to the garden. I think it's a little different in the book, but the animals p- played a, a quite a big part in it as well with Dickon and also the plants. There was some really nice time-lapse photography with plants and and some close-ups of animals. And it was almost a little Wes Anderson-ish in some of these sort of vignettes that would occur inside the movie. Really? Yeah. Oh, that sounds right up my alley. I might might actually go watch it. (laughs) Yeah, I think you might like it. You know, there's a little bit of tweeness to it as well, but that's expected and that plays into me saying you need to be in the right frame of mind to watch something like this. I'll give you a quick rundown of the reception. It's a 7.3 on IMDb, which is normally a pretty good sign. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 85%, so Mm. that's also very high. And Roger Ebert gives it a perfect four. Mm. I was going to go on and say Maggie Smith's in it, but we've already covered that. The English actress who played Mary Kate Maberly, she went on to be Wendy in Finding Neverland. Ah, interesting. Yeah, it was a good movie. I think if you liked the book, you'd really like the movie as well, and I think that's true for for most of the fans of the book out there from what I've read. I remember liking it. I think I must have seen it more than once because as you were talking, I had quite vivid memories of the vignettes. Yeah, it's really a beautiful movie Mm. in that sense. And they sort of got the haunting manner. They captured that quite well as well. I remember Definitely. The little creaky stairs that you've got to go up to find Colin and all those sorts of things. It's- yeah. Keith, one of the things that featured heavily in the book that I wasn't able to execute well when I was practising in front of the mirror at home was the... Burpees. Was the... <laughs> <laughs> no, quite, getting on quite well with those. Thank you. No, no the accents was featured quite a bit from the the serving staff. We Googled it. (laughs) Could you give us a quick rendition of the accent? (laughs) I I can't. I can't summon it up just like that. But they did cast English actresses and actors for the most part, I think. So they were, I'm assuming, quite accurate based on that. I didn't didn't have a problem with them myself. And the children's acting was also quite reasonable. Sorry. Sorry to disappoint there. (laughs) Keith, any more about the movie? Um, I think that about covers it. Great. Patrick, you had something you wanted to share with us? I've got some questions from Goodreads. <gasps> Goodreads returns! There weren't too many for this one, but I thought I would I would just grab a, a couple just to bring the segment back and maybe run through it in future weeks as well. Excellent. So these are some, some things I've pulled, some unanswered questions from Goodreads that I've pulled that I thought maybe we could help people with in regards to the book. The first one is uh, from Jessica Lopez, who says, I can read the book. And uh, so I'd just like to say congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sure I speak for everybody here when, when I say that to Jessica Lopez. <laughs> well, with insight like that, there's always a space open for you on seeking tongues. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much a question, but kind of a comment there, wasn't it? Uh... Cindy asked, uh, do Mary and Dickon fall in love with each other or grow to be the best of friends? And <laughs> <laughs> did, did you guys think there was going to be any kind of romance element creep in? Or Keith, am I wrong? But in the movie, does Colin get a little jealous of Dickon at some point? You're not wrong. In fact, at one point he suggests to Mary that they should marry so mm. they're always together and she just looks at him and says, you can't marry, we're cousins or something to that effect. And I think he's like, so? 
Mm. Which was a little strange. Le mm. cousin's dangereux. <laughs> is that how it is? Yeah, little little prat. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't really think there was many, or if any, overtones of that kind of thing. I thought Colin was the type of guy who could be a bit of a jealous brat sometimes. But, mm. and, and I don't necessarily feel the need for any kind of resolution about their ongoing relationships or anything. I thought the friendships were really nice. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Cindy, I don't know if this is the same Cindy or a different Cindy. Is there a secret garden somewhere in the world? Does the secret garden from the movie exists? <laughs> Keith, <laughs> Keith does, does the secret garden from the movie exists? It does exist inside all of us. Oh. <laughs> Pagan was, was, is a witch. <laughs> was there anything remarkable about the garden from the movie that Cindy may sort of be latching onto here? Is there a reason why that garden over any of the other gardens in the world might be more desirable? Or was it kind of a stock standard garden? It was truly a magical garden that had deer wandering around and goats and other animals and birds that were feeding their young and just beautiful flowers and and whatnot. So I can see why Cindy is so enamoured with it. Maybe I've been envisaging the garden as a little bit too small in my mind. Like, is it quite an expansive space? It certainly is, yeah, in the movie. I don't know whether that's true in the book. I kind of imagined it as quite big in my yeah. mind. Yeah, I sort of felt like they were running around it and that there was plenty yeah. of space for them. That makes more sense in retrospect. But for me, I guess maybe something about the idea of it being secret and I kind of thought, well, it can't obviously be too spacious or it's not going to be very secret, is it? But It has, it has some very high walls. It was kind of reminiscent of the maze in The Maze Runner in that respect. Mm. At one point, there's a gardener with a very long ladder peeking over the top and seeing these scandalous kids inside. Yeah, as in the book. Mm. And Brian asked, what do you think the purpose of magic is in The Secret Garden? I guess we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but Mm. what did you kind of settle on, Laurie? What was your perspective of the magic? I was convinced that the author was either a fantasist or a pagan and that they only put the reference in about Christianity to keep the local religious types at bay with their pitchforks and torches. So that's what how I chose to think about it. I know it's completely inaccurate, but it makes me enjoy the book a bit more. <laughs> well, it may may or not be inaccurate. Oh, I felt that it was more the children's magic more than anything. It's this imagination running wild and they took it and turned it into a game and it helped them all. I think most of the pitchforks and torches had been put away by the early 1900s as well. But oh, There's always pockets. I think I had a similar thought about it. it. It did have a paganistic element initially, especially with Dickon's communing with nature, and it kind of lost its way a little bit for me as it went on, but such is life. Okay, and those are the questions I had. I hope we've enlightened the populace. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to now um, ride in on the wings of that, and I've plucked some very ripe fruit myself from the Q&A fields of Yahoo Answers. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Does anybody Yahoo? <laughs> do you Yahoo? Mm. These people do, and uh, having read some of these, I don't think I'll be joining them too In too much of a hurry. Uh, So this question was titled, The Secret Garden Symbolism. What does the following things in this book a symbol of? The wall, the key, the magic garden. Please help. Very urgently important. (laughs) Homework due tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case that wasn't enough, they did put in an update. Yeah, it is for school. I have a packet and it says, what are the many things the key symbolises? I am just really reading the question for the first. And a second update, I am reading a child's book for a child's assignment because I'm like in seventh grade. <laughs> that helps you with coming up with an answer. <laughs> the panic of not having read the book and having to do the assignment. Did, I remember it well. Did anybody suggest that they should actually just get on with reading the book instead of spending time on the interwebs? Yeah. Even just watch the movie. Mm. Yeah, no one even suggests that. It's it's funny. There's so many questions that are very similar. I need to, you know, a book report by tomorrow for this or very much in the same line that I don't want to read this book. Can you just give me a quick answer? And there's so many people that provide that answer without any sort of suggestion that they should actually just read the book. You know what? That makes me want to get on there and start making up stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You'd get some good answers, I think. (laughs) Do you think the internet has just ruined English literacy for 
the world forever. And probably research. Nobody has to think about how to go and research things anymore. You don't have to actually go and look up books. You just look up the internet. Mm. Young kids these days. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. They don't know how hard it was. (laughs) Early high school is when the internet started kicking in for me and... I slur every word and mispronounce things all the time. (laughs) Blame the internet for everything. It stunted your teenage years. That's right, yes. Probably attribute your hunchback to all of those weeks spent (laughs) (laughs) hunkering down over a keyboard. The bells, the bells. Sorry, Keith, you're next up. I've just got one more, maybe two. So this one is just a bit of time for us to reflect. If you had a secret garden, what special things would you put in it for you to enjoy it? Well, I'd have to have a pretty sweet Wi-Fi connection, obviously. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> How else are you going to know uh, what berries are edible or not? <laughs> and a bubbling brook. That would be nice. I'd just want some taters, man. I want some taters. Delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Get nice and fat. <laughs> I'm beautiful. For anybody who wants to know what my secret gardens would look like, just feel free to head over to my Pinterest page where I've got hundreds of the things pinned to my wall, mostly Australian natives, to bring birds and bees. Mine would be full of weeds. And lots of vegetables and berries. Potatoes? Well, I've got potatoes in my garden at the moment, actually. Red Desirees. The 10-year point when they first walked into the secret garden, overrun and things dying, would be my secret garden after about three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I'd definitely have some raspberries. I'm a fiend for raspberries. And they're too expensive from the shops. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll give the last one wait, here. Wait, wait, Keith. What would you have in your garden? Yeah, that's probably something I should have thought about before I proposed the question. But I would just have a nice, tranquil peaceful place, very reminiscent of the Secret Garden from the movie, which was great. I wonder if it's a place you can actually visit, like one of those not open gardens, but private gardens that you can pay to enter. Not sure. Mm-hmm. Pop it up on Yahoo, someone will have the answer for you. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Quick, urgent. <laughs> and here's the last one I'll leave with, titled Two Versions Over the Secret Garden. I remember one of my classes for school, our teacher read to Secret Garden and we watched the movie. I remember it opening with a blonde-haired girl who was playing soccer, but everyone disliked her or something like that. And there was this tall girl later in the film who wore glasses and was named Mary. There was also this boy and all three of went to the garden where this tragic event happened. I think it was a murder, but I forgot the rest. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's already trying to mislead the public, so we don't have to worry about it. We'll we'll leave it to someone else. Well, that synopsis was a bit briefer than mine, but I'm not quite sure it's as accurate. <laughs> not quite. I think they've mixed up a bend it like Beckham with Midsummer Murders. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. But so, so they continue. So now, years later, I want to watch it again. But all I can find is about a girl from India, one I did not watch. So I need help finding my version. And you know what? I did find that version, in fact. No one on Yahoo Answers was able to. No. Is it actually The Secret Garden or is it something else? It's called The Return to the Secret Garden. Oh. Uh, It's a movie from 2000 and it kind of has that telemovie feel to it. Oh, I'm shocked. I am too. I'm waiting for the bit where they turn into a thriller and someone's murdering somebody. Is this another lorry gag? It's not a lorry (laughs) gag, but I'm sure you could, given a few minutes, come up with a much better plot than actually... It takes place in the movie. I think it's something about an American girl who goes to visit relatives or something in England and a very similar structure to the movie adaptation of The Witches in a way. But yeah, it looked really horrible and hopeless. So I won't be answering that person's question despite no one else being able to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both, Pat and Keith. Those questions were very entertaining. Patrick, do you want to round us out with some scoring? I would absolutely love to do some scoring for you. So, I'll be relatively quick. If you give this book one point, you think it's probably an intergenerational curse passed down from Bree's grandmother to her mother to Bree herself. (laughs) Two points, an embarrassing gnarled-up relative you keep in the attic. (laughs) Uh, Three points, a grumpy old gardener with a fair bit of charm. Four points, a flourishing garden on the first day of spring. Or five, an intergenerational blessing through the years of Bria's family. 
What do you think, Laurie? Yeah, I really loved it. There were a couple of faults, but I don't think they were enough to knock it down to a four. So, Brie, well done. Five. Woohoo! Rejoices. <laughs> <laughs> For me, I really enjoyed it too. And I think the length and some of the rambly bits just took an edge off. And I'm going to give it a four. But absolutely stellar. What about you, Bree? How is it in revisiting? It still stands the test of time. There are still things that I absolutely love about it, even if they're not the things that I remember loving about it back in the day. Loved it. Five stars. And Keith, how happy are you right now? One to five, I guess. Look, I'm disappointed I haven't read this one now, having listened to that and having watched the movie. It sounds like a good one. I will give it an imaginary four out of five. <laughs> oh, beautiful. There you go. Very informed opinion from Mr. Rowe. <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody. And thanks all for listening. We appreciate you sticking around while we took a brief hiatus. Hopefully, we will continue to record over the Christmas period. We always appreciate your comments and likes and shares on Facebook and Twitter. So thanks for listening. Next episode, we visit one of my favourite authors. Pat's tossed Neil Gaiman's The Ocean at the End of the Lane on top of the pile. Will it delight? We'll see. Until then, if all it takes to make a depressed and sickly young man feel like hitting the gym, hitting goals and enjoying life to its fullest is some time in his fat, ugly cousin's secret garden... Oh... Then who are we to judge? I thought we were home clean then. (laughs) (laughs) After all, it seems to work in Alabama, Tasmania and Blackpool. So go outside, get some fresh air and keep reading. I'm surprised you don't get more hate mail. (laughs) Attraction, I would probably say... Oh, Put your pants on. (laughs) Is that what you'd say, Keith? No, it's certainly not. (laughs) Okay, excuse me, everybody.